I think the problem with women is that we are givers for the most part. And I think we are always busy taking care of other people or just being busy. And we really don't, we, we don't prioritize understanding our own money. According to the statistics I've read, I mean, like over 60% of women would really rather do something terrible than think about their money. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they just don't want to do it. And it's, it's, to me, it's, it's kind of a fear that they have that is not well placed. It's a false fear. Knowledge is power, whether it's with your money or your health mm-hmm. or any other thing. I mean, you don't want to put your health on autopilot, right? Right. Because if you don't go get a mammogram or you don't go get your checkup, you could be very sick. You, if you put your finances on autopilot or you think that your partner is your financial plan or your father or your mother or the guy down the street, those people, no one can be your financial plan but you. What does it take to put your life's work out there in a really big way? How much can I do with this one precious life? Welcome to The Selfish Gift. Life is always coming at us fast, and that feels especially true when you decide to write a book. You take on this huge, ambitious commitment, and suddenly a home improvement project goes sideways. A family member has a health issue. You have crushing work demands, or some other huge interruption comes along and threatens to pull you off your path. My guest today experienced all of that and more and is here to tell us how she got through it and managed to finish and launch her book. Kimberly Davis is a certified financial analyst and the author of The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. She's managing director and partner at the Bonson Group, where she specializes in personal wealth advising and financial retirement and estate planning for high net worth individuals and multi-generational families. And as a certified divorce financial analyst, Kimberly's special gift is helping her clients transition to financial independence after life-altering events like death or divorce. Kim's mission and personal passion is to help women of all ages and wealth levels to achieve a solid financial footing in both calm and turbulent times. Through her podcast, her online platform, and Instagram account, which are all also called The Fiscal Feminist, Kimberly empowers and educates women to embrace their responsibility to themselves and make sound financial decisions that will create peace, freedom, and stability in their lives. Kim, thank you so much for joining me today. Maggie, thank you so much for having me today. It's really a privilege to be with you uh, with you today because you've been on this journey with me from day one when I had this notion that I wanted to write a book, which I might add I did with such a cavalier way <laughs> until I realized what I what I really got myself into. But yeah, uh, it's really great to be here today because you literally have been on the journey with the book uh, with me from, from it being a kernel deep inside my mind. Right. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm for, for those listening, um, I am Kimberly's publisher, uh, through Wonderwell. Uh, and yeah, you really went through it, girl. You really did. I, you know, we saw all kinds of ups and downs, um, while you were writing your book and, um, you were just like, facing the headwinds all the way through and you managed to get it done. And the book is amazing. We're so proud of it. And I want to hear all about all those things that happened and how you coped with it. But first, let's just 
you know, if you have you tell us about the book itself and how it connects to your life purpose. So what is it about women and money and why do you care? Well, the book really is a manifestation of my concerns that uh, as I lived my life and went through my journey, started to kind of bubble up in my brain um, because of all the things that I had experienced. Um, you know, I was an investment banker. I was uh, first a lawyer on Wall Street, did security, corporate securities work, and I became an investment banker. And I've been an entrepreneur. Uh, now I'm a wealth manager. Um, but in between all of that, you know, I had three children. Um, I was married for 23 uh, or four years um, and then went through what people call a gray divorce, which means it happened in my 50s, in my case, in my early 50s. It was about 12 years ago. Um, and I went through a variety of situations that were, you know, they were like an apocalypse in my financial life, which then spread into my personal life in not very positive ways. Mm. So, um, you know, without getting into all of that at this moment, uh, there were some very trying times during my divorce that I believe and be believe now, given my experience as a wealth manager and certainly as a certified divorce financial analyst, that if I had um, known what I know now, if I had planned differently, if I had been more uh, inquisitive, more knowledgeable, uh, on top of things a bit better during the course of my life, the outcome wouldn't have been as bad. And it was a very bad outcome at one point where, you know, it could have gone either way as to how my retirement was going to be, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I became a wealth manager, uh, it took me a while to build up my personal book of wealth management for business. But I did that over a course of, you know, seven, five, seven years, whatever it is. And, um, you know, now I have a, a robust book of business with clients I love. And it's turned out to be an amazing career for me. But along the way, uh, I realized really deep in my heart, and, you know, who knows why we have these things, but, you know, my passion is I never want any woman to go through what I went through. I had a lot of fear. I was paralyzed by the fear, um, specifically after certain, un, you know, unfortunate, the unfortunate series of events that occurred during my divorce and after the divorce decree that uh, literally was only honored for six months and then uh, wasn't honored by uh, my ex-husband, thus causing me not to have any alimony or money. Mm. Um, this caused a lot of fear in my life. And I realized that whether we like it or not, you know, money is the cornerstone of how we get through this, this journey. Okay. I, I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. And if I had done certain things better, I'd be in a better position. So I didn't want anyone else to make the same mistakes that I did. I know that women, you know, we've had a long journey. We have had a lot of um, iniquities. Um, you know, there are, there isn't parity. There still isn't parity economically and certainly not with respect to our rights. Um, but the reality is, is that um, I didn't want anyone else to go through that. So I got it in my head that I wanted to start a platform for women of all economic strata not just my clients who have wealth managers. Mm -hmm. And I began the platform just by writing a series of blogs because I thought, oh, you know, I'll write blogs and maybe people can read them and it will be useful to them. That's how the whole thing started. Uh, I didn't know what to call it. Um, so I started off with trying to figure out a name for it. And uh, that's how the Fiscal Feminist 
kind of came into being as a platform. And from there, uh, I started to do some podcasts and then I established a social media platform, which is on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and all that stuff. Um, and then I guess at one point I was just like, okay, I think I'm, I, I want to put all of these topics with the why into a book. So the, the subtitle of your book, well, the book is called uh, The Fiscal Feminist and the subtitle is A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. Why do women need a financial wake-up call? You've talked about your your own um, you know challenges and, and your desire to help um, people avoid the situation that you found yourself in. But what are we what are we not getting? What do we not understand about our money? What do we why, what's the wake up call? Well, I think, you know, um, just historically, you know, women have had a different narrative with money. Right. Um, the, the first reason is it's just it's for a long time. We didn't have the same economic rights or the rights to money that men did. And hence the way people talk to us about money and the way people still do talk to us about money in some ways is very different than the way men interface with money. So, you know, I, I mentioned this in my book and I mention all the time, but, you know, in 1976, when I graduated from high school, women could not get a credit card um, without the signature of a man. Which is, um, which is just one of the kind of like jaw-dropping nuggets that I learned in the book. Um, you know, I, I think that we think that, oh, that's so far in the, you know, far in the ancient history. Um, and it's just not the case. Like that's, that's recent. And that's, that's shocking that, that level of disenfranchisement and inability to fully participate in our own economic activities. Yeah. And so that, so, you know, put that in the context of the timeline, right. Um, for And before then, you know, obviously women couldn't own property until, you know, they could really until the late 1800s in some state, mm -hmm. uh, in any state. And, and so we never, you know, our antecedents with respect to money and property ownership and building net worth has, wasn't really there. It grew over time as we started to vote and we started to fight for those things. But really, the narrative wasn't there. And so women haven't had the benefit of that long uh, historical owning property, having money and it being, you know, kind of accepted. So there is that. Um, also, you know, in conjunction with that, there's still is uh, not, there is not parity in payment uh, to women in their salaries. That's a fact. They make 82 cents to each dollar a man makes even today in 2022. Um, and we also have a myriad of other things that we have to contend with. Um, and along with the inequity in income and how we get paid, I think also due to the fact that we do 70 to 75% of all caring responsibility for whether it's our parents or our children or whoever, we get stuck doing it. That's a fact, even if we're the primary breadwinner. Mm -hmm. um, it causes us maybe to have gender segregation in the choices of careers that we choose. And that may make us less bulletproof when there's a recession or a pandemic or something to that nature. So those are kind of like the macro things, you know, that we have to deal with. And then the micro things that we have to deal with are we are caregivers. And so this takes a lot of a hit on us. We, you know, don't contribute as much to our retirement because sometimes we step out of the workforce or work less. We don't contribute full-time to our social security for exactly those same reasons. We don't have the same career development for exactly those, those, those same reasons. 
So, um, not only that, but like women's products often cost more than the exact same product that's marketed to men. So life is literally more expensive for women, even without thinking of like, Oh, she has a thing for handbags. No, it's not about that. Like we have a thing, we buy razors. They are more expensive. Our haircuts are more expensive. Our dry cleaning is more expensive. Like it's just more expensive to be a a woman. We wear makeup, we get our hair done, you know, we do things like that. But the other thing that women have to worry about is that they statistically live longer mm-hmm. by five years than men. So they have a longer period of being alive, which on the bright side is we get to live longer. On the negative side is if we don't have enough money to fund that lifestyle through our elder age, it can be really very bad. And to your point, our medical costs are higher across the board. And as we are older, we have a longer period of time of paying for these medical costs. And I think the problem with women is that we are givers for the most part. And I think we are always busy taking care of other people or just being busy. And we really don't, we we don't prioritize understanding our own money. So I think all of those things have put us a little bit on the back foot. And I think a lot of women um, and according to the statistics I've read, I mean, like over 60% of women would really rather do something terrible than think about their money. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they just don't want to do it. And it's, it's, to me, it's, it's kind of a fear that they have that is not well placed. It's a false fear. Knowledge is power, whether it's with your money or your health mm-hmm. or any other thing. I mean, you don't want to put your health on autopilot, right? Right. Because if you don't go get a mammogram or you don't go get your checkup, you could be very sick. You, if you put your finances on autopilot or you think that your partner is your financial plan or your father or your mother or the guy down the street, those people, no one can be your financial plan but you. And if you, and you can still be in a relationship with somebody else and be in charge of your finances and knowledgeable about them, it doesn't make you any less of a partner. But women, I think, also have thought it awkward to talk about money with their partners and other people in their lives. And again, that has been a detriment because often I spoke to someone just this morning who's looking for a CDFA. Uh, I'm recommending someone for them to work with. And she was a lawyer for several years, stepped out of the workforce, has no idea of all the accounts, doesn't really know exactly what her husband's making. Amazing. Yeah. And I mean, she's a lawyer. This 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 isn't somebody who like, oh, I haven't had money around me. I haven't had to think of it because I'm, you know, because I, because I, I'm, I'm broke or whatever. Like, no, there's money flowing through her life. She's just disconnected from it. Yeah. And that, and this is honestly, she, this is not uncommon. She is actually not the exception to the rule. I have women who come in uh, with my clients who are married and they have no idea. They don't even want to come in half the time. And I'm like, I don't have meetings with just one person. Oh. So both people have to come in. If they mm-hmm. don't, then I'm not having a meeting. I'm not doing that. I don't play that game. Now, the other thing I would like to add to is, and I don't want to make this into a political thing, but, you know, if women can't control their reproductive rights, this, you know, I want to say, I'm going to write a blog about this, um, hopefully this weekend if I can get my shit together. But um, <laughs> you know, if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Yeah, you're, it's me. encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. So, you know, you know, I want to say, is inflation more important than your reproductive rights? If you're going to vote, are you going to vote for people who talk about inflation and recession, which are short-term economic negatives to your life? Because actually losing control of reproductive rights for women who are still able to have children 
will affect their economic and financial life for the rest of their lives. It will negatively impact the economy over time. And these are the same women that probably aren't going to be able to get any kind of, uh, you know, benefit because many of them live in states where they don't believe in child care tax credit or, you know, helping people with child care and parental leave and all that other stuff. So who takes the hit on this? The woman who may not be equipped to have a child or pay for a child. These are the reasons why women need to wake up because I hate to break the news to them. The, the cards are still stacked against us. And the other thing, since I'm on this topic, is that I, I said this last week in a speaking engagement I had, and, it, and I think it resonated, but, you know, we used to talk about all this stuff a long time ago when Roe v. Wade became Roe v. Wade and when, you know, people talked about equal rights and, you know, equal pay and all that stuff back in the 70s and the 80s, the second wave of feminism or whatever you want to call it. But I don't feel like we talk about women's economic issues very much anymore. Mm-hmm. I think there are so many other issues in the world that are pressing that this has really gotten sidelined and it is huge, the effect that it has on individual women's lives and also the economy in general. Right, because we're half the population. And so, you know, if, if, if women are impoverished, then the country is, 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 it, is, is it impoverished. It negatively affects GDP. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a fact. So, uh, you know, for me, it's like there isn't, this is an emergency mm-hmm. um, in my mind. It's not like something we can sit around and ponder now. Things are getting serious now, okay? And we still don't have effective protections for women who in pregnancy, them getting their jobs back or getting the same jobs back or not being discriminated against because they have a kid. We still have a motherhood penalty where women are like 10% less likely to get a job if they have kids vis-a-vis their count or their counterparts who are single women or women without children or their male counterparts. Women actually get a pay reduction when they have children. Men actually get a 6% pay increase. Wow. We still believe that men are the breadwinners and that when they have a kid, they're taking care of their family. And when women have kids, they think she's going to work less. Kim, it's one of the things I love most about you and and your whole approach to this topic and the book is that you are political, that you're feisty. I always say that you're like a combination of like, if you could, you're a mashup of Susie Orman and AOC. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're like, well, I, you know, I hope I, I wish I was as young and look like AOC. <laughs> yeah, would be good. You know, like wake up people and get out there and like make change in our legislation, um, in society, in the norms and what we expect and in the conversations that we're having. But the other aspect of your book is that, um, you're, it's, it's a real tough love book. That's equally tough as it is on the love. So you're, you know, you've just been, um, talking a really tough line there and I love it, but, um, you're also super supportive of women in this book. You know, it's a, it's a, you, and you put it on on our own shoulders to deal with this problem. So we've just been talking about the laws and what, what we can do in terms yeah, of you it, know changing changing the laws in our country. It's but, macro but we and micro. we have to take yeah. it on ourselves too, and that's part of your your message, right? Is like nobody's going to come and save you. Um, you have to do it for yourself. But the other the other thing I love in this book is that, like for example, you call budgeting an act of self love, an act of self care. So talk to me about how we can 
reframe this instead of like, oh, another thing that I'm doing wrong or failing at into, no, this is a way of caring for myself. Yeah. And it is because, right, if you are suffering financial stress, whether you can't pay your rent, you're living paycheck to paycheck, maybe you can't afford health insurance, whatever it is, you're going to be stressed, right? Your blood pressure is going to be high. You're probably going to be having bad habits if you were like me. You know, I was no stranger to a drink during those times. Um, those things make you unhealthy and they will follow you throughout your life if you don't change them. So all of this is, you know, if you want to look at like, how do I become a less stressed out person who's healthier? Well, then you got to look at all the habits that you have, right? Do I, you know, eat too much fatty foods? Do I not work out? And am I living a completely financial life that's in turmoil, which even if I have the healthiest diet, and I work out every day, if I'm a financial mess, I'm still going to be stressed out because I might not be able to pay my rent. Or if something happens, I might not have any backup in uh, liquidity or cash to help me through a bad time. Right. It's then going to be a really bad time. So I believe everybody, you know, this has to be approached on a macro and micro level. Macro is use your vote, use your voice. When you're choosing companies, look for a company to work at that has policies that are favorable to women. Actually walk the walk, talk the talk. But on a micro level, we all are responsible for ourselves. We come into this world on our own. We leave on our own. Um, you know, unfortunately, and I mean, I'm as big a Sleeping Beauty fan as the other, any other with the fairy tales, but it just ain't true. Okay. So um, I would love Prince Charming to show up or Princess Charming or somebody charming to show up, but it's probably not going to happen. So um, I, I would just say that we then as individuals have to take responsibility for ourselves. And just worry about ourselves. And just like you would worry about your health and your self-care, this is an integral, integral part of your self-care and your self-love. It's like the old adage, if you're on an airplane and you, you know, you got to help somebody with the oxygen mask, put your own on first. Well, this is that. And even if you don't have anyone else to help out, don't you want to live your best, happiest life right. into your old age with dignity? not worrying where your next dollar is coming from, not living strictly on social security when you're 75, 85 years old. You want to have, that's the moment in life where you want to be enjoying life, not worrying about if you can pay your rent and end up, you know, God knows where. Right. So it is, in my mind, this is all about self-love. If you love yourself, and I wish more women love themselves as much as they should, because like I said, women are kind of the cornerstone of society, in my opinion. Um, they really do. They are caregivers. They are, uh, you know, multitaskers. They try to be perfect, which they really shouldn't be. They need to, you know, I talk a lot about the competence versus confidence issue. Women have to, you know, they strive to always be perfect. Um and they really do need to take a beat and love themselves. Mm-hmm. That's the best role model we can give to younger women, whether they're our daughters, our colleagues, students, whatever. If we don't show them that, like by putting everybody else first, we're not benefiting ourselves and we're not benefiting those that rely on us, whether it's our children or our parents or whoever. So to me, it's like, it's so basic. If you love yourself, you're going to get your shit together. And also, you have to view this as, you know, you don't have to take the whole thing on today, okay? I really try in this book to give you a roadmap, but with small digestible pieces 
right? Um, I was interviewed uh, for something. I think it was the balance. Uh, I think it was that publication the other day. And uh, what I was saying is you've got to just start with small goals, right? You're one goal at a time because you have these goals go in order. And as you accomplish one, you move on to the next, pat yourself on the back, have a glass of the bubbly, go to the next one, so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to have a budget or you're going to look into your finances and say, oh, my God, I can never get my nails done again. I can never have a Starbucks again. You know, right. my life is going to be terrible and I'm going to be miserable. Right. Because part That's of this is a, this is about creating a life that you enjoy and that is your own life to to live. So in your book, you you cover what I love about it is that you cover really so many aspects of um, the uh, aspects of life that contribute to a woman's overall financial picture. So relationships, career planning, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And, and relationships so, are very important because you, people that you meet can negatively affect your bottom line. Right. And people that you share a house with, whether that's um, a romantic partner or a roommate. Um, right. But, uh, but right in the center of the book, there is some real nuts and bolts, um, just money management stuff. And it is the five steps to financial freedom. So can you quickly walk us through what those five steps are, please? Yeah. And these are kind of something that I, I know some reasonable minds can differ on this, but then I would say they weren't very reasonable. <laughs> um, and the reason I'm saying that is, you know, um, there is a process here. And what I get a little bit worried about is sometimes people give advice and they're like, yeah, just start investing. You know, right. uh, invest in these things. Like there are finfluencers, as they're called now, all over the place. And I was asked the other day by investment news, are you a finfluencer? And I'm like, I don't think so, because I actually have the chops to talk about this. I've been a wealth manager. I've been in the capital markets for years. But there's a process to this, right? This isn't like, let's get rich quick and solve all my problems because I invested in cryptocurrency and I happened to get lucky at one point. This is, not, this is a process. This is long term. This is really about infrastructure. So this is the first thing I'm going to say to everybody they have to do before you max out on your 401k, before you start picking stocks and bonds you want to invest on, you've got to do this other stuff. This is like building a house. This is your foundation. And once you get this in order, you're good to go. So the first thing you need to do is you need to create a badass budget. I know people hate the word budget and I hate to use the word budget because it's boring and that no one wants to think about it. Think of it as more of a cash flow analysis. How much money do you have coming in? How much money do you have going out? Those are the two things you care about the most. If you don't know that, you don't know anything about your life. So you know how much you make. You know what other inflows you have. That's the first nugget of information you need. Then you just got to say, okay, I know what my rent is. I know what my car payment is. You add up those things. And then you look at all the other money you're spending. And if you're spending like, you know, way, too, way over what you're bringing in on you know, other things that are discretionary, then you know where you need to start doing your work, right? Because you're probably bridging that gap between what you bring in and what you spend with credit cards. Mm -hmm. So the second thing you got to do is eliminate all credit card debt. I'm not saying don't use credit cards. I use credit cards. I get points. I just booked a three-day thing in Palm Springs and I used, uh, I don't know, 100,000 American Express points, whatever it was. Um, pay the bill off every month. But if you have credit card debt, do not go on to anything else. Pay it off. And you can use um, the debt avalanche method, which is high, paying the highest interest credit cards off first. So the, the, the debt snowball method, which is paying the smallest balance off to kind of give you some, you know, inspiration. 
but there are many methods. I talk about them in my book and you can find them all, you know, you can research other things, but, you know, get the debt off your ledgers because then the third thing that's important is that you have to maintain a good credit score because that gives you leverage in what the interest rate on your loans are going to be. Who's going to rent you a house? Who's going to sell you a house? What's your car payment's going to be? So that infiltrates through all other aspects of your financial dealings. So once you get rid of the credit card debt, your credit score should go up. So just keep you know monitoring that. Then the fourth thing, which is very much a cornerstone to being financially organized and secure, is start to save your money because you don't have to pay your credit cards anymore. You know what's coming in. You know what's going out. You, you set a little budget for your discretionary spending so you know you've got whatever that number is per month to spend on pulling around, and then you take 20% of what you bring in and you put towards um, savings and because now you don't have to pay debt, right? So the emergency savings fund, I always encourage people to have four to six months of, of just cash sitting there. That's for if you get sick, if your partner gets sick, if you lose your job, if you decide you hate your job and you want to pivot and just have some money while you're trying to figure out your next move. Once you have that in place, then you are in a very good financial infrastructure situation. You have a solid foundation to go on to take on maxing out on your 401k to setting up an investment account or buying a house or whatever it is, or start to save for buying a house. But the fifth thing I say is have fun with savings because if you don't view it as fun with a positive attitude, then you won't want to do it. So baby steps, and having a good attitude about it and saying, you know what? Like when you start looking at your bank account and you see that you've got five or six months worth of money sitting in there and you know that you've got yourself covered in the, it, I don't know, in the event there's a uh, duh, pandemic or some other thing that we don't know that's going to pop up, right? You will be like, yeah, I'm a badass. I got this together. You know, I know I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to have to like go borrow money or incur more credit card debt that I'm never going to get out of and maybe have to declare bankruptcy that will dog me for seven years. You know, so this sounds boring. It's not like, hey, guys, I've got the five best stocks for you to invest in and you're going to be rich tomorrow. Mm -hmm. This isn't you're going to retire at 32 because I, I still think that's a fallacy. It's, mm -hmm. just a, it's, a, it's a soundbite that people like to talk about. But, yeah, I, I think people don't understand that most people could live to 100 now. Um, so I don't know what retirement means to them, but it could be a very long time. So these, if you do these things, I promise you money back guarantee, these will change your financial life and you need to do them and you need to do them with a smile on your face and realize that it's just as important as going to get your mammogram or going to the dentist, whatever it is to take, you know, to make sure that your body's still functioning. This is just as important. So I love that you're, uh, thank you for laying those out. And it does sound easier said than done in some cases, especially, you know, the, the putting 20% aside for savings. I mean, we, and even you and I both live 20, in Los Angeles, which is one of the most expensive cities in the yeah, world. Uh, and, but, you know, but even if you can't do that, I don't care if it's $10, mm -hmm. just start with something. Mm -hmm. I tell people all the time, do it on automation. If it's $25 a week, just do it. Maybe that's three or four Starbucks you can't have. Mm -hmm. And I also have other things in my book that help you kind of accomplish saving, like little things that you can think about before you make a, 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 an expenditure that maybe in retrospect you shouldn't do or you did kind of on autopilot because you're 
on your laptop and you know you're just doing some internet shopping that you can't even remember what you bought until it gets delivered. But I would just say, you know, you can automate little, even if it's like $5, start wherever you can start, because that is what's going to get the ball rolling. Because you're going to see after a month, maybe you saw $25 a week, you got a hundred bucks in there. Right. That's something. Right. Right. That is something. And part of, so much of this is about mindset, knowing that like, I'm a person that doesn't have debt. I'm, my savings may be small and they're growing, yes. but at least they're, I'm going in the right direction and that that's hugely empowering and so different from feeling like you're just, um, snowed under. Um, yeah. so Knowing, uh, because you'll never get out of it and it's all with your credit score. Right. And that affects so many other things. Right. Like, and it affects like, your self-esteem and your feeling of, yeah. well, and it affects your very real, um, you know, limits your, your, your freedom of choice, right? What can yeah, I do with it, my life? What can I do with my day? And I always say yeah. that like, you know, people say money doesn't buy happiness. And I think that that's true. This, we certainly know rich people who are miserable. It doesn't guarantee 100%. happiness, but you know what money does buy? It buys the freedom to make a choice about how to deal with a difficult situation. None of us can avoid getting into difficult situations or having bad luck befall us mm -hmm. in life. But we, we, having bad luck befall you when you've got a financial cushion under you is very, very different than the alternative. A hundred percent. And I've been in both situations. I've lived, you know, during the divorce, I, like I said, I live paycheck to paycheck. I've sold jewelry to pay for food and I've had a lot of problems where I was like, I, I, I had a point where, you know, I was hard for people to get a, a rental because uh, my, my credit was bad because I was using credit cards to right. try to get through life. And so I get all of, I, I hear that, you know, and I get it, but I wasn't really cognizant of a lot of the stuff because I was so overwhelmed with worry and, you know, the divorce and everything. But all I can say is um, money doesn't buy you happiness. I'm not saying that I'm that I actually, I don't view money as a conduit to happiness. I view it as a conduit to security and calmness. Calmness. Calmness mm -hmm. just means you can deal with problems in your life without freaking out. That's it. Is it going to make you the happiest person in the world? Uh, no, but you'll at least be calm and unhappy if you can't, whatever you're unhappy about, right? <laughs> so I, I, I really love that your, you know, your whole purpose in life now is to, you know, empower and support other women to make their lives better. And of course, um, for you, uh, writing this book is not just about helping others, but also about making, you know, empowering decisions and moves in your own life and career. So let's pivot the conversation now and talk about the writing experience and your decision to write this book in the first place. I would love to know, um, aside from all the, you know, the reasons that you've just given us, um, why did you decide to write this book? Like what, what was it meant to do for you personally? So, you know, like I said, at the beginning of this whole fiscal feminist creation of the platform, I didn't really think of it as a platform. I thought of it as a blog, right? And then it started to evolve. I am an entrepreneur. Um, I've created businesses in the past. Uh, I had my own fashion business in London and sold the clothes with Saks Fifth Avenue. So I'm no stranger to building a business. Um, and so with everything that, you know, I can't ever do anything like this. So I... The book came along because as I started to flesh out in my head what I want this platform to be, the book is an important component to big, to building the bigger platform, right? So I had the social media presence 
we're clicking along. If you want to follow me on social media, please do so at the Fiscal Feminist um, on Instagram, and you can also find me on LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, but it, and I was doing the blog, but it was also under the Bonking Group uh, kind of umbrella, right? So I started thinking a little bit more about this, and I thought I actually want this to be a robust platform that can be educational, um, and that could also be a place for me to find speaking engagement so that I could spread the word, um, and that I can really, you know, make a difference of in its own right. So I created the Fiscal Feminist LLC, which is the company that owns all the intellectual property and everything else. Um, I have my own podcast, and so I've separated that out, and I have my own now podcast platform that is strictly for the fiscal feminist. I have my own website now called www.thefiscalfeminist.com, on which you can buy the book, you can see everything that I do in the media, you can read all my blogs, and then I'm now working on online courses that people will be able to take, not only in personal finance, but retirement, investment planning, divorce strategy, um, some other topics I think a lot of times people don't have courses on that I think are almost as important as personal finance. Uh, so I'm in the process of doing that. The reason that I wrote the book is I thought, okay, before I get into the website and all the other stuff, I want to establish myself as an expert mm-hmm. in the field. I have the background. I'm not you know, like some of these people on TikTok who are influencers who are 21 and I don't even know what qualifies them to talk about some of this stuff. I'm not that person. I've been kicking around for a long time. I have a lot of experience, but I wanted it to be manifested and displayed through a book. So that is why I decided to write a book. And I had no idea if it was going to be like a 10 page book or a thousand page book or 200 page book. Somewhere in between. I just thought, I just need to write a book because I think that is how people get the ability to establish their expertise and be recognized in their industry and outside their industry as an expert if the book is good and well-received and has shops. I really like that you have this whole integrated approach, and those are a lot of different elements to build, right? You, the podcast, the courses, and one of the things that um, that I, I want to ask you about is the, you know this shift from... Um, blogging on your company website. So you mentioned the Bonson Group and you were mm-hmm. blogging as the fiscal feminist, but kind of under their umbrella. And you had to kind mm-hmm. of migrate and set up your own personal brand around this, this new, um, this new brand identity. So tell us what that was like and really how hard it was and how much money it took. I mean, you know, to be specific yeah. about that, but like, so, give us an idea of no. like, what, what did that really take to put together? Cause it sounds exciting. I know a lot of people want to do it, but it also sounds like a lot. It is. It's, I mean, it's a lot of time and money. Um, you know, I still will put my blogs up on the Boston group. It's just the podcast won't go through there, but some of the blog, one of the reasons I wanted to have my own uh, website was like, I will write about reproductive rights this is not something that should be sitting on the bonson group website mm-hmm. that's about my wealth management topic so i'm about to also write a blog on women in cryptocurrency that will be also on the bonson group website because that's about my wealth management practice and you know that's in the zone right um so for me again i think of women's economic situation as a 
very huge group of many elements that just aren't about, you know, portfolio construction and financial planning. That's why I d- I've done this other thing. So, yeah. So this is And I know that you also, you have partners in the Bonson group, right? So you, yeah, you wanted yeah. to, it was really important to you to put together um, your own LLC and also these, these um, branded platforms that are your own. And that so that your own, I mean, in many ways, yeah, can, you're like following the yeah. advice that you give in the book, right? You're not, you're not interweaving your kind of destiny and future and ability to kind of control, um, control your own output. Um uh, yeah, this is in, with your partners. You know, look, the the, be, the the thing is, all my um, experience and knowledge from wealth management play into my expertise as a fiscal feminist. But these are separate things, right? Fiscal feminist is my brand. It's my passion. It is. Um, it isn't me um, counseling, you know, higher net worth people about their money, which is mm-hmm. another expertise it also lends my ability to tell people about how to become those people right um but you know it is my own brand and so you know my partners have always uh known and this has always been my own intellectual property um and we've all set up our own intellectual property within the group each of us or some of us do have our own podcasts and blogs um Mm-hmm. But I'm the only one that's really gone off to do my own branding in this way. And the reason is, is because I think it's a very specific thing for women. And it, like I said, many different things, but uh, it was a business, right? It's a business. So right. I needed to do a business plan because just like with any other business, um, you know, I had to decide in my own mind, okay, am I doing this strictly to get the message out and, you know, maybe write a blog a month and just let it be like that? Or am I really doing this to make this into something that might have legs mm-hmm. with or without me? Because I want it to be a collaborative effort as well. I want to bring a lot of other experts in and mm-hmm. I want this thing to have its own legs. I want it to be a collective of women also within the website so that we can have webinars or people ask questions and get involved. So I had to sit down and say, okay, what do I want to get out of this thing? Um, well, I want to feel like I'm making a difference. That's the most important thing. Um, if I'm not, if people aren't hearing my message and, or it doesn't resonate, then I should just, just do my wealth management practice and, and live my best life, you know, which would be way easier than what I'm doing right now. Because some days I think on a Saturday when I'm sitting here writing something and it's sunny out and I could be outside hanging around, I think, why am I doing this? Like I, I have a job. It's a good job that I love. Why don't I just do my job and have my weekends and not worry about, you know, the fact that I have to always be writing something and just hang out because I really care about this. This is not like a manufactured thing. This is like in my heart. So I had to do a business plan. Have I spent a lot of money? Of course I have. Um, The first thing is, okay, I create all the content but I'm not going to sit around and pick every picture for social media and do the posting calendar. I don't have time for that. I already work 12 hours a day. So I had to employ a social media group that helped me with this stuff who were awesome. I had to pay a web designer who's handling the website and all that kind of stuff. Um, with respect to hybrid publishing, as you know, it, you know, I put quite a bit of money into the book. Um, do I think the book will p- end up paying me back all the money I put into it? Uh, who knows? I, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that I didn't go into it with that expectation. 
I, I want to sell a lot of books because this book, I think, really is a good roadmap. Map, and I know that people who have read it say to me, I really love this book because it's a very different kind of financial book. And I've learned a lot from it. But um, the book was part of the overall business plan of what I needed to establish my um, my gravitas. Right. Uh, so there was the book expense. So, you know, I would say definitely, you know, I'm I'm well over a hundred thousand dollars of investment into this well over. Um, and it's, I'm very fortunate that I have the background and the knowledge of how to start and run a business and that I have the ability to, to, to find that money to, to, you know, put into it. Um, and now the next thing I've had to kind of grapple with is the timing of putting together the courses because I need assistance in doing that right mm-hmm. now. Courses have video in them and all kinds of stuff. So I need, I don't know how to do that, right? So I will have to have a capital outlay to do that. So I've done my own projections on, well, if the course is good and, and it's organic and it grows so that there's a, uh, you know, people can come back and, we, you know, we revise it and update it. Also, there, maybe there's a consultation part of the course mm-hmm. that can come in and have like a every uh, two months or every month, a you know, kind of a short meeting to talk about things, whatever. Um, but I need, I need, I don't know how to do that. And I don't have the time to do it all, all on my own. So that will require capital outlay. So I have to always be, you know, looking at what I spent, what I think I could ultimately make. So I made a decision that in order for this to be sensible for me, I would like it to become also uh, something that produces uh, revenue for me. Um, obviously, that's not happening, you know, as it's starting to happen now. But um, I had to lay the infrastructure like any other business. I right. had to write my business plan. I had to have money to invest in, in it. And and then forgetting about the money, just the time. Well, that was the next you know, thing I was going to ask you. So, I mean, one thing that you didn't spend money on and didn't need to spend money on, Kim, that some folks in your situation would, is a ghostwriter. You wrote right. your entire manuscript yourself and you did it while working crazy bone-crushing hours and also dealing with a whole bunch of like unpredictable life challenges. So talk to me for a minute about what it was like to write this manuscript and what were the headwinds that you faced along the way? <laughs> I remember when, uh, so you have to do the book map or book. We did a book plan. We started with book a book plan. plan. That's yeah. Yeah. Right. So I remember, you know, worked with the editor I had, Allison on the book plan. And I thought, okay, you know, we're getting together. This is what we're going to talk about. These things make sense. Right. Cause just, just to, just to bring everybody up to speed on like where you started from, you knew what you wanted to write about, like, you know, this topic, but you didn't have an outline. You didn't have a book proposal. You didn't actually have like, here's my table of contents that needed to be developed. And so you worked collaboratively with our editors just to kind of like set the frame, right? Here's what the book will contain and how we'll structure it. Right. 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 Granular things. Because I remember thinking, yeah, I want to write a book. And then I talked to you guys and I was like, oh, dang, you know, I got to I gotta really get granular with this, you know? Right. So then, okay, we do that. And that's all good. I'm also proud of myself. I'm like, you know, I got my table of contents. I kind of know what I'm going to do. And then um, I sit down in front of my computer and I'm like, chapter one. <laughs> and I remember my, Allison, who's my editor, saying, you know, you don't have to write the chapters in order. If you want to write chapter five first, because you think that's going to be easier to start with, do that. 
And in fact, that is, I think, what I did. Um, I started with what I knew the best, which was I wanted to get into the finance stuff because I knew I could write about that. And then I started, you know, but it was difficult because you just, it's like, you know, everybody says it when they write, you know, you just sit down and you look at the computer and like, okay, uh, well, what am I going to call this? Now, I had the benefit of having written blogs for a while. So I had my style. I was also a lawyer for many years. So try not to write too much like a lawyer because that's a smooth fest. But I, you know, I know how to write. But um, but yeah, I was just, that was just hysterical. And then I started to get my momentum. But it came in waves, you know, like I could be on a roll. But, it, you know, look, I literally spent probably two years of my life almost every weekend except for when other things were just so overwhelmingly ridiculous um, or a holiday or whatever, where I was writing the book. Yeah. Because almost two years. On, yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. thing about it is it's always on your mind. Right. Like you can't get rid of it. Okay. Cause it's like when you sit down to watch some Netflix thing, you're like, Oh, you know what? Like I should be writing my book right now because I need to get all this done and I'm not going to get it done if I'm sitting here watching Netflix for three hours. So it was like always on my mind. So I underestimated when I came up with this notion about how all consuming it is, if you want to be timely and stay on your timeline. Um, and then things come up. And right? that, that, so just, that, that two years that you spent working on the book, I, I think that that includes, you know, that was, it was a couple of months in the planning and the chapter outlining. And then there was also, I think you're also referring I took to a hiatus for there a was while. a, there, you took a hiatus when life was just too intense, but also then we, I think that you're also including in that time period, the, the revision and editing process, which, yes. you know, editing is includes rewriting, right? Editing isn't yeah, just like no. spell oh checking, like this, editing I've is read this book so many writing. times. I'm like, yeah. oh, I should have every stat in my head. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's so, an intent. And that's the thing is like, so you write and then things happen. So then I just got to the point where COVID happened. And that was actually, as far as writing goes, gave me a little bit more leeway because I was writing them from remotely. I was working remotely. So I could really fit the writing in while I was also working because I, I could just never leave my But you, uh, on top of COVID have. or before COVID, you had a bunch of like personal stuff that would, you know, would make yeah. a lot of people give up. So what were some of the challenges that you faced, um, well, you know, you had? Some of them weren't, you know, some of them weren't challenges and some of them were challenges. But it's like, first of all, I didn't, I got married, which I wasn't planning on. Um, <laughs> I was planning on it, but I wasn't planning on it really. But then Mark popped the question and I said, yes, because he's a good egg. But, you know, then we had the, we had to negotiate a prenup because, of course, I wouldn't get married without a prenup. And then um, I had uh, decided I wanted to buy a house. So um, and at that moment, the exact perfect house came up. But I was in an, another house I was renting. So we decided I did buy the house and I bought it on my own. I, I told Mark it was a condition to our marriage that only I buy the house. And then it had to be, you know, certain things had to be renovated, one of which was my office, which I'm sitting in now, that was like a movie thing. You know, people have like a movie screen in here. And I'm like, uh -huh. I don't need a movie screen. I need an office. So I didn't, I needed to stay in the other house until this house got done. So the deal was I need my office to be done by like January, February. Okay. That didn't happen. Didn't happen until way after that. And that so this, and this office that you're building out was supposed to also be like, you're the sanctuary for writing. So you didn't, exactly. you didn't even so have that. that. Was, yeah. Yeah. Gonzo. Um, and then, so there was all of that, you know, just the stress of buying the house, the stress of, you know, 
renovating the house and finding all these people who sometimes show up, sometimes don't show up, paying them all, and then also moving. And then in between all of that, you know, I have very elderly parents. Um, my mother has, uh, al uh, not Alzheimer's, excuse me, she has dementia. And um, there has been ongoing, and I'm an only child. My parents are in Pennsylvania, so I had to go back to Pennsylvania um, a number of times because there were some issues that, you know, I had to deal with that were just pressing. I can't, those are time sensitive. I can't just say, oh, sorry, parents, uh, I can't come and deal with it. Right. So there was all of these things going on. And um, and meanwhile, didn't your daughter get married in the middle of all that too? No, she's getting married in October. So oh, that got pushed because of COVID. That, yeah. yeah. But so yeah, every, the, yeah, the, yeah. Fun time. So yeah. So now, <laughs> now so that's the other thing is like, in addition, so my book comes out in May and I have a PR agent in New York now and, you know, I'm trying to promote my book, so on and so forth. Well, I didn't think anyone was getting married in October of 2022. I thought we were going to do this in 2023 and that would be wrong. So now I wasn't anticipating paying for a wedding in New York City in October of 2022. So then that affects my business. I have to reevaluate. I have to recalibrate um, about my expenditures for the year because now all of a sudden I have this other thing that's like not small. And I was going to do some other work in the house this year, which I'm not doing now. Mm -hmm. Indefinitely postponed. There's only so many dollars that I had to decide, is this platform more important than what I wanted to do in this house? Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, I've put so much work into this now to stop would actually be such a disservice to myself because other people needed other things for me that I just couldn't, I can't right. say no about the wedding. Yeah, I'm excited for the wedding. So it was a journey and it was exhausting. So I got to the point where between the social media demands, the book demands and the, and the house and not having a space, I just remember it was like right before Christmas. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I need to take a break because I know this feeling. I am so burnt out that I can't even string a sentence together. So if I want the book to be good, I need to come back at this fresh, you know. And but I but also what ha what happened into the house and what happened in there? I think you know your 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 husband had um didn't he? Oh, and then he broke his shoulder. Right. So that's right yeah. after we moved. <laughs> right after like, you moved. Terribly. Right. Yeah. Like, he still hasn't recuperated. Almost a year and a half later, it was such a bad break, and so he could not help unpack any boxes right it literally happened the day after we moved in oh my goodness yeah i mean the fact that we're actually still married after that even though it wasn't his fault i was so mad at him for breaking his shoulder i was <laughs> like are you are you kidding me this is when you're going to break your shoulder this is not a good time oh my god okay so with all of that going on um it's understandable that you took a break and you know what i think that uh, good on you for recognizing, um, you, you know, what you needed in order to go forward was to temporarily s slow down or stop, you know? So, um, that's just another example of, um, caring, caring for your own, um, your own ability to, you know, keep, yeah. you know, you're, you're filling the well, every right? aspect of yourself. Yeah. But, so what about the, with all of this going on, how did you get, look at all those words out. Um, tell me about your actual writing process. How did you, how did you write this manuscript? Did you have a special place or a certain time of day or lucky socks or like what? <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is I'm a, I am a very uh, early morning person. So 
I don't know why. But that doesn't surprise me for some reason. My best thoughts come to my head when I'm either on a treadmill or I'm sitting at my desk at 5 a.m. in the morning and it's quiet um, and I have a cup of coffee. But the way I, I'm a pretty methodical person. So I researched every part of the book, right? There's a lot of research that went into this book. So I did my research and I started, and so I made a, I started off with just making a page of all my research sources and then kind of categorizing them as to where they fell into whatever I was writing about in that chapter. Um, and so I start with that and that was kind of like got the juices going as I was researching. Then after I did that, I would do a very kind of, um, broad outline of the chapter. Like, what am I going to talk about first? What am I going to talk about second? And I also like to put quotes and other things in there. So I would try to think about quotes or other ideas that came in that would make it more interesting. Um, and then, and then so that's how I would do how I did each chapter. And then I would just start to write, you know, and sometimes I'd be amazed because I, I start writing and I think, yeah, okay, you know, I don't know how long this chapter's going to be. And then like 8,500 8, words later, I'm like, oh my God, I've just written a pretty long chapter here, you know? Um, I was surprised because I thought it was going to take me forever. But when at, because my research was very organized and then I had kind of a broad outline, I was able to like have some momentum as I was writing. And then, and, and so for example, with the book, with the parts of the book that were more about historical things and not quite as tied to, uh, tactical steps that you could take, but more kind of contextual you know, yeah. riffing, but yeah. contextual historical things. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed writing those parts um, because I thought it was so interesting and I love telling the story. Mm -hmm. So once I got what my core story was going to be or what facts I was trying to talk about, about his, historical things, it really gave me the room to kind of riff a little bit when I was writing. So um, that was kind of how I got through just creating a chapter. And how long would you sit and write for at one time? Did you have a, are, are you, did you have like a regular, okay, this is my two hour window or did you just go and go and go until you ran out of steam? How, you know, so I would say like generally, I mean, one of the things I did learn and I'm kind of having to remind myself about that now when I start back to the blogging is that sometimes you just have to write wherever you are. So you might have to write on your laptop on an airplane because that's the time you have, right? So it's not always going to be like you're sitting at your desk with your cup of coffee and the light's just right and all the stars are lined up in the sky. To get this done, you just have to be able to write you know, at certain times. So I would have a window of maybe, I'd say the longest window for me was probably about five hours. Then I would have to take a break. But I want to say one thing about this too. I had to go to my parents for a while during the editing process. And that is kind of like sometimes rewriting parts of things and so on and so forth. Um, and maybe it was even during the actual writing of the book. I go there so frequently, I can't now get the timeline page. It doesn't matter. I know that I had to, uh, sometimes I stay at a hotel when I go there because they live in a very small house and, and it's just, my mom gets a little antsy if someone's in her house 24 hours a day. So uh, anyway, I needed to get a whole section done because I had to send it to my editor because I was really up against it. And I remember I finished everything I had to do at my parents that night, dinner, the whole nine yards, and I was going to go back to the hotel. And there was a mini tornado so all of a sudden I couldn't drive to the hotel, right? And I was like, 
are you kidding me? So then about an hour and a half later, they're like, okay, pass. You know, you can go back out on the road. Go back to the hotel by this time. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And I just stayed up till 3.30 in the morning and cranked out what I needed to crank out. And that was the end of that story. Because it had to be done. And I had to put myself in the mood. I got a pot of coffee. I sat down. And, and then I turned to wine. And then I just kept writing. <laughs> Good for you. That's hard yeah. to do. And so, you know, some people, some people find that little and often is the way, um, you know, some people find that after two hours, they're just not good for much anymore. And they just can't, you know, that there's diminishing returns at that point. And then other people are binge writers and they can go for a good five or six hour stretch. I'm, I'm like that, Kim, I can do those five and when I'm writing, I can do a good five or six hour stretch, but it takes me a lot to settle down and get into it. So I right. think the takeaway yeah, here like is it's yeah. really important to recognize that, you know, you, you can't just follow somebody else's prescription for like, this is what your writing cadence should look like. Do a half yeah. an hour every morning. It's like, that's not going to work for some people. If you're the kind of person who needs to really take time to sort of get yourself into the flow, you want to stay in that flow as long as you can. And that's the thing. So that was the thing. It's like, I'd reread what I wrote and I was like, Hey, I like this. You know, I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose my momentum. I'm right. in it now. I know what I want to say. And now I'm like, my fingers are like, I, I don't want to stop because if I stop, I'm going to, I'm going to lose my thread. You know, yeah. it's like a, you, you get a rhythm and, or I do, that's how it's kind of like when I run, I start off running and I'm like, I hate this. And then, you know, once I get past like mile one, I'm you like, feeling better by mile two i'm like yeah this is awesome i feel endorphins kicked in yeah this is very similar to that for me and you break through the wall right you break through yeah. the wall and and then it's uh and then it's good until it until it's not and then you gotta stop i mean my, my <laughs> main thing that i had to do was like say okay this is the last word i'm writing now in this chapter it's time to stop this chapter you need to stop now you mean you, you, say, you mean you felt you felt like sometimes you didn't like you had to make yourself uh, like yeah, like what just, you wanted enough. to go on and you, on and you, on. You, yeah, you said enough. Stop. Move on. What What surprised you about the editing process? Uh, well, I have to say I thought it was pretty good. It wasn't. It was good. I loved um, both of them. Uh, you had a, you had a substantive it, editor and then a copy editor, so that's what you what's you, that's what right. you mean with so both I had of them. Yeah. And Ariel, Ariel was this, but I also thought it was interesting sometimes to hear her point of view on some of the things that I wrote, because um, obviously I only have my point of view, right? And she and she's a younger person, a millennial, uh, and she really has some good insights. And, and some of the stuff she said, I was like, I, I don't agree, and I'm sorry, but you know. Uh, I don't really care about stay at home dads. I can throw a line in there about it, but to be honest, that's not my audience. Uh, so she was much more maybe concerned about certain things that I was like, eh, no, I don't care about that. But I thought it was good that she brought up a lot of things because a reader might be thinking that. Yeah. And I, you know, when you're writing, or at least when I'm writing, because I'm not a, a book person or an author, you know, or well, I am an author now, but a publisher, whatever, I, I, I was thinking about what I wanted to say, not about how people would be hearing it. Right. And it's often said that the editor is the 
first reader. Like the, the editor is, stands in for all the readers to come and it's their job to say, this is what I'm curious about, or this is what you, you need to explain deep more deeply, or this is what you need to set up more clearly. Um, yeah. so you, so you, you found that, that your editors, um, questions and prompts, um, sometimes, uh, yeah. caused you to read re what think, you were writing. I think not only substantively, but I think, you know, she cleaned up some of the language or took, you know, made things maybe a little user friendly. Um, I really, I actually enjoyed the editing process. I was surprised. I mean, I had, you know, there were deadlines as with everything, but, um, I thought it was really good. I, I was very pleased with the outcome of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So now the book is out there. It was published by Wonderwell in May, 2022, and it is in stores. It's distributed all across the land and it's available on Amazon and people are buying it and they're reading it and they're, um, they're. You're, you're going on podcasts, you're promoting it, you're getting feedback from readers. It's real after all these years yeah. um, of putting all this effort and time and money into it. How does it feel to see it out there? No, it's, I mean, this sounds kind of crazy, but I mean, I have some in my office here and I, sometimes I look at it and I think, when did I have time to write that book? Uh, how did I do that? Like I look at it, it's kind of like when I look at my kids, right? I think, like they're in their thirties now. They're old, right? And well, two of them are late twenties, whatever. But I look at them and I think, wow, did I really have those kids? Because it seems so long ago. <laughs> but like I look at the book and I, my husband was reading it. He read it cover to cover and, um, not my first husband, my second husband, but I did give a copy to my first husband, uh, and said, thank you for being, being you. That's why I wrote it. Uh, but anyway, that's another story. But yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm amazed. And then like when I hear people say like, this is crazy inspirational or I, some woman went to this event I talked about last week and she wrote to me and said, I was so motivated by your description of the book that they handed out, they bought 30 books and handed them out. And she said, I got up at 4.30 in the morning to read your book. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, I, if nothing good ever happens to me again, that just made my life, you know, that was so amazing. And I've had so many wonderful comments uh, and feedback that I'm really happy I did it. I, You know, and weirdly, I think, oh, I know what I'm going to write my next book on. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? You're not writing any book until. Well, tell me what, well, okay. But give us a sneak peek. What, what would it, okay. What, what would it be if you, if you do it? Well, I, you know, I think about all the different uh, things that people have reacted to in this book. And I think there still has yet to be written a good book on divorce strategy, pre-gaming divorce and a lot of other things in that space. Because I think it, you know, people write like tongue in cheek books about it, but nobody really talks about this is a tactical game that has a very deep effect on your financial health if you've been married for 10 years or more. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to fold into that kind of a whole thing about relationships, marriage, you know, they're all tied together. So if you, if you, if you do the, the post, the premarital thing, then maybe your divorce won't be so bad. But right. also just like understanding there are just some steps you've got to take during the pre-divorce and during the divorce and the post-divorce that 
are going to be really, really good for you to do to make sure that everything is not just uh, the luck of the draw or rolling of the dice of a divorce process. Well, I I, uh, I think you should write that book, Kim. Let's do it now that you have all this time on your hands. Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, promoting the book and the PR and the platform, I'm just as busy as I was yeah. before. And now I've got to, like, I just got to get through October 15th. And the wedding. Sure the wedding goes out off without a hitch. And then, um, and then I'm going to, like, bask in my idleness for till the end of the year and then i think oh what so you're gonna you're gonna relax from october to the end of the year oh that's my plan (laughs) yeah although i still have to worry about what i'm going to do about these courses for the website so okay don't relax too much right 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 because you know the thing is like uh when you have the momentum you you can't stop right because now i've written the book it's out there and people are talking about it and i have um i'm going to be sitting on a panel in october uh called uh, Women on Wall Street. So they've asked me if I come and be a panelist. And also, uh, there's a couple people that are reading the book right now, one of whom is got a very high profile platform. Um, so in October, um, she's going to be interviewing me. So there's still some, there's going to be promotion of this book, in my mind, through the end of the year. Kim, what would you tell someone, words of advice for someone who is planning to write a book about their passion and their subject matter expertise? Well, um, I would say make sure that you, um, that, you know, you have all the information you need to substantiate expressing what you need to say about your passion. So do your research. Um, make sure that you have the time or you can make the time and you're really, really committed to that because otherwise it could be a real downer if you keep missing deadlines and you get frustrated. So just make sure you have the time or that you you just 100% are committed to the time of doing it, you know, because that's so important. And I would also say, you know, do your research about who you're going to work with to to do the book. I mean, I know people self-publish. I don't even know if I completely understood what that meant, but I just knew that it didn't sound like something I wanted to do because I don't like to do things unless they're professional and I'm proud of them and they have legs and they can be put out there in the big wide world against anybody's book. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that was really important to me. I wanted it to look like and read like and be presented like a legitimate book. High quality and, book. Yeah. yeah. And it is. It's gorgeous. Book. It's gorgeous. Like yeah. we've got the lovely gold foil on the cover yeah. and it's, the, it's and just. I've got so many, so many compliments on the branding of this book. Like today I was on a call with someone who is a media and branding person, uh, not as a, even stay with the book, just someone I was talking to who is a kind of a, a, a strategic co- uh, collaborator with me. And she was, she, she didn't even know who I was. And then she, she got the book and she was just like, this book is really, really good. It covers things in a different way, but she said, I love the branding of the book. I like the way the book, the cover works. design and, you know, and she mm-hmm. bought the book for maybe four or five uh, people that she knows and, also younger women in her life that she wants to share the book with. So a neighbor of mine bought five and he is giving them to his two daughters and his nieces. That's amazing. Oh, Kim, you are such an inspiration. You're a dynamo. Um, And the book is The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women. Tell our listeners um, again where they can follow you and find out more about you. 
Yes, you can go um, on Instagram and follow me at The Fiscal Feminist or Facebook. You can also find me on LinkedIn, um, Kimberly Davis, and you can go to www.thefiscalfeminist.com. You can buy the book through a link on there. Um, And you can listen to my podcasts, which are on any podcast platform, uh, you know, Apple, Spotify. And and the name of the podcast is also The Fiscal Feminist. It's also The Fiscal Feminist. Love your brand alignment. You're consistent. Everything is called The Fiscal Feminist. (laughs) I like to keep it simple. That way I'll remember it too. (laughs) Kim, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Maggie, thank you so much, not only for having me today, but for all your help your guidance, your knowledge, and just being a, she's a top gal, this Maggie says, you're going to write a book. I would say she's, should be on your speed dial. Awesome. Thank you. I really hope this conversation has inspired you to give so much of your gift to the world that it expands you into your greatest possible version of yourself. Remember, it's not selfish just because we also benefit from it. And here's where I get to make a selfish request. New podcasts need all the help they can get. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and subscribe to us on your favorite platform. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Selfish Gift Podcast and send me a DM. I'd love to hear how you're sharing your gift with the world. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.